Hi, and welcome to Cause Pods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here on the podcast, we have one simple mission to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes, whether it's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who is just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, their state, the country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guest's favorite cause, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causepods.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. Joining me today on the show is Alina Boyt, and she is the host of the Heart Centered Life. She is all about social entrepreneurs and trying to encourage them to live a more heart-centered life because it will help us to create positive change in our world. And Alina isn't just focused on one cause, but she helps people in lots of different causes. So clearly a great candidate here for CauseBots today. Alina, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. I'm delighted to be here. And we are delighted to have you. So tell me a little bit about the heart-centered life, what it's all about, and how this got started for you. So I am trained as a law professor. So I'm, an, I'm a trained academic, and I spend a lot of time thinking about laws and regulations and markets and corporations. I also have a background in intellectual property. And the one thing that I've come to realize through my years of research and, and a lot of work is that if we want to see positive change in the world, especially social change, you know, in dealing with the problems of poverty, hunger, climate change, the answer isn't going to come from regulation in the law. And the reason is because there are a lot of lobbyists and private interests that can influence the way law takes shape. We know that with corporations, the bottom line is not always a social impact. There's more concern for the shareholders and the bottom line, and there is less concern with the impact that the company is having on the environment and on the community and its impact on a global scale. So what I've come to look at is that is the recent growth of social entrepreneurs as a response to these problems that we see. You can think about companies like Tom's where, you know, you, if you buy one shoe, they donate a shoe to another one or someone who, who needs a pair of shoes, Wobby Parker or Pentagonia, that, where there is a concerted effort into protecting the environment. These companies have identified themselves as agents for social change. They don't fall squarely within your traditional idea of what a corporation is where there is the satisfaction of shareholders and making sure that the company makes profit is the primary goal. And I'm not saying that social entrepreneurs do not care about profits, but the profits are generated in a way that is ethical, socially conscious, and there is a concerted effort to protect their employees, to protect the environment, and to make sure that the carbon footprint in the production and manufacturing of goods is, is minimized. I'm so glad you started with Tom's because as I heard you say, corporations are not going to be, you know, the solution to this. That was the first place my head went to was a company like Tom's where they were specifically a mission driven company. So I'm glad you brought that up and sort of listed out that caveat or that exclusion to the rule about corporations. But I mean, it is true that more corporations today have some sort of CSR, corporate social responsibility initiative or plan. 
more companies are encouraging their employees to take time to volunteer. They're matching donations to various causes and things like that. And so there are more corporations, I feel like, who are trying to get in on that action. But you think even to that extent that it's limited in their scope and, and effectiveness? I think those companies are very effective. So I, I wouldn't call a company like Tom's a traditional corporation. I would call a company like Tom's a social enterprise or a social entrepreneurship where the commitment to make a social impact is built into the mission of the company. So not every corporation has social impact as a mission. Agreed. But more companies are including it. And do you think that it is helpful? Do you think it's genuine and legit? Or do you think it's just a facade that's being put on in order to say, well, you know, we're not completely terrible. We are, you know, we've paid for thousand hours of volunteer for our employees and we've matched donations up to X millions of dollars. Do you think those are genuine efforts to be more socially responsible or is it mostly just to save face and to be able to put out the heartfelt press release that says that they're doing that stuff while in the meantime they might like you said their profits may not be <laughs> indicative of their mission my goodness matthew i love that question i absolutely love that question i think that if a company is committed to making social change the impact on society is going to be direct in other words, they are not just donating money to a nonprofit organization that's going to make the social impact, or they're not matching donations, or they're not just encouraging um, the employees to volunteer on a Saturday. The impact is, you know, so for example, Tom's, if you buy a shoe, we are going to donate a shoe to someone who is in need. The impact is direct. You see the difference? So it's good, I think. I'm not saying that it's not encouraging to see companies move in that direction and matching donations or by saying, you know, a certain percentage of our profits goes towards helping the homeless. And I think that's great. It's in the right direction, but I wouldn't call that company a social enterprise, nor would I call it a social entrepreneurship. It's a company with, with good motives and good motivations, but their mission in itself lets that social impact. Gotcha. So someone hearing this and thinking, well, yes, I want to make a positive impact in the world. I want to help with these major global problems, poverty, hunger, climate change. But, you know, I've also got to feed my family. I also want to be successful. What are some steps or, you know, what's sort of like that initial things that they have to think about when getting started? That's another great question, Matthew. So for me, I, I want to see that happen. But again, we're not a huge corporation with a lot of profits. We are not a NGO to receive funding. One way to start a program would be to try crowdfunding to get your project started. But also, as, as I think the company grows, one thing that I think might happen is that as consumers become more socially conscious, I think they would be willing to pay for goods that are have less impact or less negative externalities that's caused on the environment. You know, so for example, people are willing to pay for Pentagodium because they know that the company has committed to protecting the environment, right? And everything that you put on, every jacket that you buy from Pentagonia is responsibly sourced. 
So I do think that it's not easy to start a social entrepreneurship or a social enterprise. But I think that the starting point is to find people with a shared mission who can come together and put things together and get the ball rolling. And I guess also, I suppose, corporations, their mission statement is usually profitability at the end of the day. Exactly. Are there ways that traditional corporations can transition to be social entrepreneurships, like folks who are recognizing that, hey, what we do is fine, but we are having this negative impact or we're not doing enough. Can corporations be brought into the sociable entrepreneurship space, you think, or is it just too combative with what their goals are? I think it is possible, but if you're asking me if whether Walmart would ever change direction and become a social entrepreneurship or a social enterprise, I think it's it's a long road for Walmart. That's fair. It is probably a very long road uh, for Walmart to, to get to that to that place. Right. But not all companies, you know, well, it's going to have that direct impact on, it's going to have that direct social impact. So I'm trying to think of a company that, for example, today, Apple sells computers, right? And their, their mission is really to empower people to be creative, which is a great mission. And I'm not sure how a company like Apple might transition itself and become a social entrepreneurship, even if it has a really honorable mission of empowering people. You know what I mean? They may donate part of their profits, they may get involved with education, but unless their mission is to build computers with the purpose of whatever social impact there is, it's hard to classify them as a social entrepreneurship. Can they build computers using only reusable, recycled material? Can they build computers and for every computer you buy, you know, five gets donated to a a school, a school right, in a developing con- a nation or something like that. They could probably instill some of those initiatives, but right, it's going to take a long, long time. It would be, right. And it would take a lot of paradigm shifts within the company. You would have to convince the shareholder and you would have to convince the board of directors and you would have to convince the executive team to make the transition. It It's a possible trans- transition, but I think the more established and the larger the corporation is, the more difficult it is to make that transition. And in many cases, truth be told, people would probably demand that Apple does more in terms of their labor force, right? Like, who is actually building these computers? You know, we don't like to talk about that, but what we have read and what we know is that the manufacturing line... It's not the greatest conditions and people aren't paid a living wage and things like that. So look at the factories that burned down in Bangladesh with Walmart, right? And a lot of the clothing factories that some of the larger American brands get their garments from. Look at the the living conditions in those factories or the working conditions in those factories. Yeah, no, you are absolutely correct. So I'm curious, you don't come from a traditional broadcasting background. I believe before the call, you told me you're a law professor. So I'm curious, why did you decide that a podcast was the best way to tell your story and get this message out there to encourage more social entrepreneurship? That's a really great question. So I have a variety of channels to talk about this. I could write scholarship, publish it in law journals. I could go to law conference and talk about this. And I think I chose podcasts because it's got a wider, more grassroots connection, if for lack of a better word. 
again, I, I don't see change happening by talking at a law conference about what the issues are. You know, I, I don't see change happening by writing in a law review about what the issues are. I think a podcast is a great way to reach the masses because people listen to podcasts. You know, it's easy to find a podcast, plug in your ear, what do you call that? Earbuds, headphones, yeah. right? Yeah, people try it and listen to it. Or you can hear it and listen to it in the car. But having started this, I've also realized that I love making videos. I am actually making videos off the podcast as well. I mean, the audio recording. Do you find that having the videos is making a difference in your ability to be found and discovered and in the audience? The videos, I think, are more engaging in that you can put it up on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. And for people who are not on the go, sometimes they, they watch it. And I think with my audience so far, I've had more engagement with the videos than I've had with the podcast, interestingly enough. It could be that my audience are desk-bound people, you know, lawyers, <laughs> entrepreneurs. And so, so I don't know. But I found that I've had gotten much more engagement with the videos than I have with the podcast. Well, and I wonder if that's just a limitation of the platform itself. I mean, podcasts themselves are not inherently engagement platforms. When you go to YouTube, you watch a video, you can comment right there and the creator gets notified. They see it. They can respond. Whereas the podcast, you know, someone can leave a rating and review on the show, but there's not a lot of episodic interaction necessarily. So that could be one of the reasons why that happens. I'm curious when you were getting started, because I, I see at the time that we're talking, you know, you've got about half a dozen episodes up. What were some of the biggest challenges to you launching the podcast and, and how did you overcome them? So I'm, I'm not a broadcaster. I'm actually really introverted. And so it wasn't easy starting the podcast, but I listened a lot to Pat Flynn, his podcast a lot, and he has some pretty neat ideas about how to start a podcast. And I actually joined a membership for a couple of months. It's called the, the Podcast Host Academy and Colin Gray in the UK. So I, I joined that and the materials that they had in the membership site were excellent in that they took me through the process step by step as to how to set, you know, get a podcast up and running. I was a member for a couple of months, maybe about six months or so, and that got me started. And then once I started, then I started with the videos as well. What has been the biggest impact so far of having the podcast? Like, you know, what gives you the biggest smile for having done this? So when I started this project, this Heart Centered Life project, it was me alone <laughs> in my office, you know, thinking about all these different issues and how to bring everything together. And it has been so encouraging to launch the podcast and get feedback. And the more feedback I have gotten, the more confidence I've had in the ideas and the different things that I've been thinking about in the isolation of my office in law school. It's made me really happy with the people from different walks of life that I would never have ran into. Like I would have never met you at all or come across someone like you without the podcast, you know? It is true. I think a lot of people don't appreciate the networking and the communication or the community building aspect of podcasting. As a podcast producer for clients, it is amazing how many people I work with who not even that interested in how many listeners they get because just having a podcast has opened up so many other doors to them. 
that they never thought was possible. And I love it that I'm not just talking to law professors or law students. I'm talking to the general masses and getting feedback from them. And that, to me, makes it all worthwhile. So somebody listening to this interview, somebody hearing about what you're doing, I mean, who's the ideal person that is both your audience and potentially uh, you know, a guest for your show? So my audience right now are people within my network, you know, people who were former students, who are in the legal profession, or colleagues, or, you know, friends who are mostly uh, professionals. So that's my audience right now. But I do hope that demographic to change. I do want to attract people who truly care about the state of the world, people who want to see positive change in the world, people who care about the type of world that our children will inherit. So those are the people that I hope to attract through the podcast. Who would an ideal guest be? Someone who's making positive change in the world. That's a good, good potential guest to have on the show. So we always like to wrap these up by asking our guests, because you are doing a podcast for a cause in a sense. You are not monetizing this. You're not going down the traditional route. And so a lot of other folks who are thinking about a podcast for their cause, for their nonprofit, for their 501c3 or whatever that is, you know, what would be your advice to them? You know, if they're thinking about getting started or they're just getting started and not feeling confident about what they're doing. My advice to, to them would be, it's okay to not feel confident. I was not confident at all when I started this. But I think if you follow your heart and if you feel called to do something, if you would just take the next step and the next step and the next step, the right doors will open. And I, I found that to be true for my case. Perfect. We have been speaking with Alina Boyt. She is the host of The Heart-Centered Life. You can learn more about it at alinaboyt.com. And as always, we will put a link to her website and her show right here in the show notes for the episode. Alina, thank you so much for joining us here on CausePods today. Thank you, Matthew. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cause Pods. I want to take a moment and thank the newest team member, producer Caroline Quash, who does an amazing job with scheduling of guests, finding particular guests, making sure that everything gets posted properly and making sure that everything, she just helps to keep the trains moving. I don't know if I can continue to do this project without her. So thank you, Caroline, for everything you do. And again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guests, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their work and a special donation link to support the cause from there you can also follow and subscribe to the show on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, wherever you enjoy your podcast follow us on social media and join the special facebook group dedicated to you folks who are producing podcasts for a cause so if you're already producing said podcast or if you're thinking about launching one join the group we have provided some resources. We're going to look to provide even more. And hopefully we're going to arrange some special nonprofit pricing of various podcast service vendors to help you with your venture and keep you under budget. And lastly, if you are a cause potter, someone who produces a podcast for a cause and want to join me for an interview, please, please check out the form at causepods.org. Once approved, we'll schedule you for a chat and share the amazing work you do with the CausePod audience. Thanks again and see you next time on CausePods. Pods.